All right, good morning. Welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Fantastic. It's good to be in God's house today. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, my hope is that you find this a safe place to hear a very challenging message from Jesus. And, and we're this church that's kind of weird, and I talk about it periodically, but um, all of us at some point in our lives, I think, um, probably thought we had everything together. And then we realized one day that we, we really weren't the God we thought we were, and we really needed the help from one if He really exists. And so we stumble into places like this, and we think, well, if I can just learn about God, if I can just learn about Jesus, maybe I'll have that peace and that patience and that kindness that I see in some people that I know who follow Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, I can learn enough to be like them. And so we come to places like this and we we try to learn and we think that through learning we're going to find what we're looking for. But what happens is as we begin to study the Scriptures we begin to fall in love with this God. And it's not about what we know, it's about who we know. And somehow through studying these Scriptures we, we gain knowledge but truthfully something much deeper happens and we begin to realize there really is a God and He really does love us and He really does want the best for us. And so the more we learn, the more we surrender, the more He changes us. And so we come to places like this every week. Some of us here trying to figure out what's going on. Others doubting that God even exists, but maybe, just maybe if He does, i got to give Him one more chance. And others come here with a full knowledge of who Jesus is, and we're just so thankful for what He's done in our life. We have to come here and worship Him and learn more. Because we know the more we surrender, the more He changes us. Not the more we change ourselves, the more He changes us. And so we're in a series that's called Stick to the Path. And it's a series that we're really looking at this threat that came to the early church, and the same threat that threatens our churches today. And last week we began the series, and I, I went into great detail about Gnosticism, or this false teaching that was starting to infiltrate the church. And it was a, a teaching that said, look, Jesus wasn't really human. He never really died. He, he was a spirit. And He looked human at times, but He really wasn't fully man and fully God. And He never really went to the cross and He never really died on the cross. He never really resurrected because He was never human. And really the answer is you need to know special knowledge. And it's in special knowledge that you gain salvation. And so these people were starting to come into the church and they were starting to teach this ridiculous stuff. And what happened was we began to realize that many of the apostles that wow, towards the end of their lives that when they leave these fools are going to be teaching. And they're still going to be spreading this stupidity in the church. And there's going to be people who think that they're teaching truth and they're not and they have to figure out what to do about it. Now I want you to think about something for a moment. Imagine you're at the end of your life or close to it. And um, Somebody said, look, I want to give you a unique opportunity. I'm going to let you write a letter to the American church today. And I'm going to let you write a letter. I guarantee you every pastor in the country will read it. Every letter, your letter will be read at every church in the country. 
And not only that, but for the foreseeable future, every church will continue to read your letter before you leave about what you think is the most important thing the American church needs to know today. Think about that letter. What's the one thing you'd want them to know? What's the legacy you want to leave? When you have to turn and you have to let go and you're you're leaving the world and your whole life has meant something and now you want to share it with other people, what would you tell them? What would be in your letter to the American church? And yet around 65 AD, that is exactly the challenge that faced Peter. He knew he was at the end of his life. He had to write the letter of a lifetime. The essence of everything that he knew, all that he'd experienced. All of God's work through him was being challenged. His life worked, and more importantly, the life work of his Savior was under attack. The truth had been given to the apostles, and now they were locked and loaded, ready to protect it. So this series, Stick to the Path, is is really about a spiritual war between Satan and God, about truth, between Gnostics of the day and the apostles, and between the Gnostics of our day and us. God the Holy Spirit, through the writings of the apostle, is essentially handing down the baton to us. He's saying, look, I'm leaving this world. I'm about to write to you the most important things that I know. We, as believers in Jesus, have to protect the truth. The race to protect the truth is now ours. If we don't do it, who will? See, when Peter wrote his second letter, he wrote it not only to the church then, he wrote it to us. Because people who challenge the truth of Jesus are never going to go away. And people who love Jesus are never going to go away until he calls us home. And in the meantime, we're here to carry on Peter's job, to teach the truth, to protect the truth, to guard the truth, to reveal the truth. That's the job of every believer. So these teachings, the second letter of Peter, firstly, third John and Jude, are all a call to arms for Christian people across the decades to defend all that Jesus taught, all that he is, and the truth of salvation through him. This is not simply a letter written to the first century church. It's a letter written to every believer. So today as we turn our focus to 2 Peter, I talked last week about how 1 Peter was a letter that Peter wrote to the Christians who were being persecuted by Nero, telling them that it's worth the struggle, it's worth the fight. But 2 Peter is a letter where Peter specifically turns and says, look, you're dying for something. We got to protect and make sure that you're dying for truth. Because there are wolves sent within the church to destroy it and to destroy the message. But we really can't read a book about or from Peter without really focusing on Peter himself. You see, that's something I think that people miss when they read Scripture. And part of my job as a pastor is to help all of us open that book and learn more on our own. But for many of us, when we hear a Scripture, read a Scripture, see a Scripture... We just see, oh, that's 2 Peter. Oh, that's 1 James. Oh, that's John. And we don't think about the person that wrote those words. 
You have to think about the person who wrote the words as you're beginning to understand and reading the text that they wrote. Too often we jump from book to book in the Bible as if it's all the same. Truthfully, they are the same because they all speak God's truth. They're all inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit told that writer to write down those words. So in that sense, every book of the Bible is the same. God is the author of every word in the Bible. But wonderfully, He allows the personality of the writer to show through in each book. The Gospels and the books written in the New Testament are more like portraits than they are photos. Let me give you an example. When you take a photo of something, you take a snapshot in time, you take a picture of it, it is what it is. You take a picture, it's, it's a snapshot. In a single moment you capture it digitally. But the Bible is more like a collection of portraits, or portraits as we say in Texas. Portraits allow the artist to highlight what they want the audience to see. You see a photo is just a snapshot, but a painting, a portrait, a, a something created that's not just a snapshot allows the artist to actually highlight and show you what they want you to see in that moment. They share the artist's perspective and personality. They show you what the artist wants you to see. We saw that a couple of years ago. We did a whole series on Rembrandt and seeing Easter through the eyes of Rembrandt. And we learned how Rembrandt used light and darkness to highlight what he wanted you to see in that moment in that painting. If you took a fixed camera up here and we just took a picture, okay, we would have one snapshot caught in time. But if I put six artists up here on stage and I said, hey, paint the audience, we would see what the artist wants us to see. If Ed drew it, we'd all look like cartoon characters. <laughs> and we'd have big noses and all that kind of stuff. We, we, other people might say, no, I want to highlight the seriousness of this group, how much they love Jesus. Others might say, oh, well, you know what, what I want to highlight in my portrait is the diversity of this group. We're all in the same moment, but we're highlighting and bringing out certain things that we see in that moment. That's how you get four Gospels who look at the exact same circumstance and get four different perspectives of the same moment. You don't get four cookie cutter pictures. Instead, you get the story of Jesus told from four different people who have four different backgrounds with four different perspectives, all of whom are writing to four different audiences, trying to highlight the most important things they believe you need to see in that moment. The writers of the Gospels and books of the New Testament tell the story from their perspective through their lenses. You have to know that when you read Scripture. You can't just cookie cutter James and Peter and Paul, they're totally different people with totally different backgrounds. Their background, their educational level, their preferred language, the intended audience they're writing to directs them to reveal truth to us in a way that reflects who they are. The truth doesn't change, the perspective does. Some books intended for Jewish audiences use Jewish terms. They don't explain them, they just use them. Everybody knows what that means. Other books written to Gentile audiences, every time they use a Jewish term they have to define it and tell you what it is, because you don't know. Paul's letters in particular reveal a very high intellectual level. 
a very educated, logical flow that goes from deduction to deduction. About the time you're thinking a question in your head, Paul is writing it down and answering it for you. He was one of the most gifted, most talented, most educated people in the entire Jewish system at the time of his life. Luke's letters are the most detailed. He gives you details of moments. You're wondering, why did you put that in there? But if you want details about a moment in Jesus' life, you're most likely going to find it in Luke. Why? Because he's a physician. He's trained to notice details. He's trained to notice things. That's what doctors do. When, when he speaks of somebody being completely healed, it carries a little more weight because he's a physician. Matthew writes with a detail that reflects his background as an accountant and tax collector. When you read Matthew, you can almost see the accountant in him. He's laying out facts one by one. He doesn't have the complexity of a scholar like Paul or a physician like Luke, but he clearly has this mindset of one thing leads to the next, and you see that in his text. James and Jude are the brothers of Jesus. They, like many people, flunked out of the synagogue at about age 8 or 9 or 10. They were people who initially during their life rejected Jesus. They didn't believe in Him. He was their brother. How can you believe your brother is the Son of God? It's a hard thing. They all came to believe in Him after His death and resurrection. But James and Jude highlight more aha moments. They don't go into deep theological discussion. They reveal to you those moments of the heart where you go, wow, this really is real. Not Israel, the nation is real, true. Okay. They focus on actions. Each book of the Bible, you have to understand the author. If you don't think about the author when you read Scripture, you're going to miss half of what's there. John, in his books, reveals his heart of love. John is the disciple that Jesus loved. That's how he described himself, not arrogantly. He couldn't believe that Jesus could love him. So that's what he called himself. The disciple that Jesus, and if you look at it in Greek, it would come across the disciple that Jesus actually loved. As if he couldn't believe it. Not arrogantly, undeserved honor, he would say. John was the youngest disciple. Jesus was older, and to him, perhaps like an older brother or a father, he had a different relationship with Jesus than, say, Peter and others who were more his age. His perspective is one of love, and his writings reflect that love in every writing that he does. Let me read a couple to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, not anything that was made was made. In Him is life, and life is the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. His writings are just full of love. In His next letter, 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest. And we've seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim it to you. The eternal life which we, with the Father, has made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So that you too can have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things to you so our joy will be complete. Do you hear John's heart in his words? You can't read John without thinking about how much he loves Jesus and loves you and me. We'll get to this later, but notice in that passage the message to the Gnostics of the day. Remember the Gnostics who said Jesus was just a spirit and was never human? John says, oh, you don't understand. I've seen him. We've touched him with our hands. He's real. He's manifested. Translated John saying, look, Jesus is human. He was as human as any other person I've ever seen. We touched him. We know him. This spirit thing is ridiculous, John would say. John was called the disciple of love because you can see it in his writings. So as we approach a study of the second book of Peter, we need to spend some time thinking about Peter. His background, his education, his perspective, unique moments in his life that shaped his perspective. And then use that lens to help us understand the words that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write to us. Without understanding Peter, we can't understand his book. For instance, when Peter talks about taking steps of faith, we should pay special attention because he was the wave walker who got out of the boat and knows what it means to take a step of faith. When Peter talks about forgiveness and the forgiveness of Christ, he knows because he denied Jesus three times. And Jesus forgave him, and he's been allowed in his entire life to walk in the grace and peace of forgiveness because he knows what he did. And he knows as well as anybody that we need forgiveness. And that this knowing Jesus is not about knowledge of special things. It's about a relationship with somebody who forgives you and loves you and cares for you and restores you and still blesses you. So as we begin the book of 2 Peter, I want to spend a large part of today looking at the life of Peter. In addition to that, I'm going to show you a ton of Scripture. Uh, I think 60 slides we have today, which is, I think, a record for me. I'm not going to show you the Scriptures because I want you to focus a lot. Well, never mind. I do want you to focus a lot on the Scriptures. I don't want you to get lost in them. I want to use Scriptures like a photo album of Peter's life. So when we get to the end of the photo album and it's time to start looking at the book he wrote, we'll be able to better understand the words that are on those pages. Peter, also known as Simon, Simon Peter or Cephas. His name is Simon. He's originally from Bethsaida, a city, a fishing city on the north end of the Sea of Galilee that was very close to Capernaum, which is the city where Jesus based his Galilean ministry. So, Peter grew up in this small town on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. He's also called Simon Bar-Jonah, which just means Simon, son of John. So, when people would talk about somebody, I would be Frank Bar-Alvin. Frank, son of Alvin. My dad's name's Alvin. That's how they introduce people. Peter was in the fishing business with his brother, Andrew who was also a disciple of Jesus. And in addition, they had two co-workers that worked with them, two men, James and John, who also became disciples. These four fishermen 
became fishermen of men when Jesus invited them, all four of them. They knew each other. Peter was not highly educated. He had fundamental education in Judaism with the common people. Like many Jewish boys, he studied Judaism, but he had no real promise or potential. So the priests, the leaders of the synagogue at about age eight or nine kicked him out and said, you need to go do some kind of labor. You don't have it to be a scholar in Jewish tradition. Every parent had hoped that their child would be able to be a scholar. So to be sent away was sort of a, a disgrace. It was the kid that didn't make the soccer team or didn't make whatever. And it's not surprising that many of those families, if they didn't make it in Jerusalem, they would take their kids north to the Sea of Galilee and live there. So they wouldn't be as much shame as if they were in Jerusalem. Like many Jewish boys, he was rejected, but he was a commoner. How do we know that? God tells us. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized they'd been with Jesus. Uneducated, common men. That's who Jesus picked to be his disciples. That's who Jesus picked to write some of the most important letters the world would ever see. Worse than being uneducated, he's a hick. He's from Galilee. Galilee shouts ignorance. Galilee people from Galilee are immediately dismissed as uneducated. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. You're talking funny. You're talking stupid. You're a hick. Why should we believe you? Now, I know this because I grew up in Texas. Moving right along. Peter and his brother Andrew were originally followers of John the Baptist. You may not have known that. Peter and Andrew, as fishermen, began following John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the crazy one out in the wilderness. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. He ate locusts. He wore crazy clothes. He's a perfect friend for Peter once you know Peter. Crazy guy out in the desert. Peter's like, I'm going. That's what Peter does. Peter always moves his mouth and his feet before his head engages. That's what I love about him. So he's a follower of John the Baptist. He's a disciple of John. How do we know that? God tells us. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following. He says, what are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? In other words, where can I go with you? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means rock, Peter. God gave Peter a name that spoke to his potential. I love this about God. I talk about it all the time. God doesn't see you where you are. He sees you in the full potential of who you're going to be. 
Peter had done nothing to look like a rock. He'd done nothing. And yet Jesus looks at him and he says, you know what? You're a rock. What? You're solid. No, I'm the guy that thinks and runs with my feet in my mouth. I don't, you're the rock. Jesus always speaks about who he'll become. I hope when Jesus thinks of you and me, he has a name for each of us that speaks to our potential as well. Something we couldn't believe about ourselves. Something we couldn't accomplish on our own. Something we could only become when the Holy Spirit is fully released in our lives to achieve that. Think about it. The world at that time called Peter a high school dropout, a lowly fisherman, an uneducated simpleton from Galilee, son of a man named John who was also a nobody. And Jesus says, no, no, that name doesn't suit you. You see, you're going to be, you see, Simon, from now on, you're going to be a rock. You're going to be my rock, Petrus. That word means a high mountain cliff, not a rock. A high mountain cliff that's there time after time after time that never changes, that's always there, always the same, that's daunting. That's who you are, Peter. That's who I see in you. I love that about Jesus. Simon, now Peter, becomes one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's the disciple most mentioned in Scripture. Of all the disciples mentioned, Peter is the one that has far more verses about him than any other disciple. And every time the disciples are listed in the Bible, Peter is first. That's critical in Jewish teaching. It's always, lists are always most important to least based on listing in uh, Hebrew. So it's important to realize that. Peter's my favorite. Bold, but totally not socially aware. Impulsive, but completely comfortable in his own skin. He's always eager to jump in with his mouth before his head is engaged. That part of your brain that says you should wait a second, he doesn't have. That part of your brain that says maybe this wouldn't be right, maybe you ought to process this for a minute. No, that's not Peter. Every time in Scripture when there was a moment when somebody had to show loyalty to Jesus, Peter was there first. Matthew 14, 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Peter said to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. When something needed to be said, Peter said it. Luke 8, 45, Jesus said, who is it that touched me? When all denied it, guess who spoke? Peter. And he said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. John 6, 66. After this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Guess who spoke? Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Mark eleven twenty. 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered to its root. Guess who spoke? Peter. And said, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed has withered. Mark 14, 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
And they all said the same. What you see is when Peter makes a declaration, the other disciples follow. He's a leader. John 13, 4, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and he poured water in a basin and began washing the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter and he said, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, no, 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 we're not doing this. You are not going to stoop down and wash my feet, Lord. Nobody else said anything. Who spoke? Peter. Then Simon Peter Having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Servant's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Everybody else stood around. They were threatening Jesus. Who came to his side? Peter. What did he do? He cut his ear off with a sword. Why did he do that? Because less than six hours earlier, Jesus said, You're going to deny me. Peter said, No, I'm not. And then he protects him, and it turns out it wasn't the right thing. Not only was Peter the bold one who seemed to speak first, often Jesus spoke first to him. When he would address the disciples, he would often speak to Peter first. It tells you the value that Jesus already placed on Peter and his life as a leader. Sometimes the Holy Spirit spoke through Peter first. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell nobody that he was the Christ. He says, look, you're Peter. You're the rock. Oh, by the way, you're the stable mountain that I'm going to help build my world on. Not you, Peter. The proclamation you just made. The supernatural revelation by God that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what I'm building my church on. People from all over the world, all nations, all tribes, all places are going to come to the realization on their own through the Holy Spirit that I am the Christ. That's what I'm building my church on. Interesting that even the angels placed importance on Peter first. Jesus wanted to make sure after Peter had denied him that Jesus hadn't given up on him. I mean, think about that. Peter denied Jesus. He sees the eyes of Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross and dies, and Peter's devastated. Probably wondering, am I still a disciple? Am I worthy? Judas did something similar. He killed himself. In Peter's greatest moment of dejection, Jesus wants to make sure I haven't forgotten you. Look at what he says. The angel appears to them. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Make sure Peter knows. Make sure he's included. If he denied Jesus and you have decided to ostracize him, I haven't. You go tell the disciples and Peter. To go to Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. Peter was the first to see the risen Lord. And they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. 
They told him what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul writing, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture, and then He appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then the twelve. Peter often spoke, Jesus often spoke to Peter first. Sometimes it was harsh. From that time he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine? Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Think about the power of those words to Peter, the rock, who in less than 30 years is going to be writing a letter. And you know what he's going to tell the church? Get behind me, Satan, because you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You've got your mind on the things of man, and we call that Gnosticism. And it has no place in the church of Jesus. I know because I was rebuked by Jesus himself. Other times what Jesus told Peter is ominous. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Sometimes the words Jesus had to Peter were blunt. And he came and found them sleeping. He said, Peter, Simon, why are you asleep? There were two other people asleep. Simon, why are you asleep? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Of all the people, of all the ones, you're the leader. You can't watch with me for one hour. Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. Peter, the night's about to get really ugly for you. You're going to deny me three times. You need to pray. You need to have strength. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus, in his most desperate moment in the garden, is more concerned or as concerned about Peter and what he's about to face than he is about what he himself is about to face. I'm going to the cross, but your moment is coming, Peter. And sometimes Jesus just had to look at, you ever have that with your parents where they just gave you that look? You know, my kids talk about, you know, I can handle the words, but when dad gave me that look, okay. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he'd said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter. Peter was also one of the three disciples closest to Jesus. He was in his inner circle. He was not only the leader, he was one of the top three. He, along with his fishing buddies, one of them, um, James and John both, and they saw things nobody else saw. Jesus took them into the quiet places and showed them things. Mark 5, 37, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Mark 9, 4, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. 
And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus in His glory. Nobody else saw that. Other times when there was just kickback time, Peter would turn to Jesus and say, I need to know more. And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? In other words, when does the end of the world happen? When is it coming? Now, I know I'm going through a lot of Scripture here, but I want you to see who Peter is. And don't worry about the. You can go online, download the entire text of the sermon. Every Scripture is in there. It will be up later this afternoon. So Jesus sent Peter and John and said, go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Over and over, Jesus telling Peter, engaging with Peter, listening to Peter, inspiring Peter. Peter, Peter, go do this. Mark 14, 33, and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus, in his most desperate moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, I need Peter here. Peter, you, James, and John, come to the center with me and pray for me. You see, my soul is despondent and I need the rock with me. I need to know that when I go to the cross, it's going to be in your hands. And that God has already decided you're the rock and it's not going to be in vain. And it's not going to be a waste of time. I need my people with me, Peter, and you're one of my peeps. Once Jesus ascended to heaven, Peter became the main leader of the church in Jerusalem. Peter led them to choose the replacement for Judas. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of all persons was about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who has become a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So as soon as Jesus leaves and when everybody's gathered, the one who stands up and begins to lead the church says, we need to replace the traitor. Peter also healed people. Acts 3, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand, rose up and walked. And immediately his feet and ankles were strong, and leaping up he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets, and laid them on coats and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. This is not some average guy that's writing this book. He's got experiences nobody else has. Acts 9.32, Now as Peter went there and among them all, he came down to the saints who lived in Lydia. And he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise up and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Peter healed people through the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter preached to people. When the church grew, its spirit fell at Pentecost. It was Peter who stepped up and preached in Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's the third hour of the day, but what is uttered through the prophet Joel. 
When somebody had to stand up and speak to the crowd for Jesus, Peter's the one that did it. Later on, Acts chapter 3, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as if by our own power or piety we've made him walk? Peter now is doing what Jesus did. He's speaking to the crowds. He's explaining what they're seeing. Not of his own, through the Holy Spirit. That's what followers of Jesus do, right? They begin to look like Jesus. Peter was jailed and miraculously was saved by God. At that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he seized him and put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, that tells you something, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. He was planning on doing to Peter what he had done to Jesus. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him up, and said, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. Peter knows what it's like to be jailed for what he believes, to face death for what he believes. Peter spent time in hiding. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking at the door. And when they opened, they saw him and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Four battalions, four groups of soldiers all of a sudden look around and go, where is he? I thought you were watching him. I thought you were watching him. The chains are there. Where did he go? And after Herod searched for him and could not find him, Peter's in hiding. He knows they're going to come after him. He examined the sentries in order they should be put to death. Bad news bears. Don't lose your prisoner. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Peter stood for Jesus and preached to the government when they needed to be preached to. On the next day, the rulers, elders, scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who are the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, and he goes on to defend Jesus. At a later date, when they had brought him, they set him before the council, and the high priest questioned him. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood among us. In other words, you're teaching that we killed him. You did. We're teaching... You're teaching that it's our fault. It is. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. You see, he locked eyes with me and he said, I had the things of Satan in my mind and the things of men. And I learned my lesson. I'm focusing on the things of God. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you do to me. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him as right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. We are witnesses to these things. Peter's so bold, he's like, look, I don't care if you're a leader, I saw you kill him. 
When he heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill him. Peter played a key role in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. When Paul said he was an apostle and had heard from God to go take this message that they thought was for Jewish people to the entire world, and they came back to validate Paul's message, calling, and apostleship, guess who they came to? Peter. And after much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter's the one, the leader. And Peter also had a special promise from Jesus. Not really a special promise, more of a foreboding promise from Jesus about his own death. He said to him the third time, Son, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress and yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. In other words, Peter, your death is going to be horrible. You're going to suffer. It's going to be bad. Follow me. It's where we're going. It's what God has designed you for. Now, Peter is not mentioned in Acts after the account of the council, but it appears that he went to Antioch based on Galatians 2, and he went on missionary journeys into the Gentile world based on 1 Corinthians 1, 3, and 9. So we can draw from Scripture that Peter continued his ministry after Jesus died, after we read about him in Acts. And then we know that somewhere around 64 AD, he gets arrested in Rome, a city that he calls Babylon, the place of Satan, the evil place. He gets arrested in Rome. He's in prison in Rome, and he begins to write letters, including 2 Peter. Okay? We know that Peter was in Rome about the time that the Jews were being persecuted by Nero, which was 64 AD. 30 years or so after Jesus died and resurrected. We know that Nero killed many, many Christians during that day because they, he wanted to make sure the world knew that they were responsible for Rome burning when actually it was him. We know that he fed Christians to the lions. Although I found it interesting that the Gnostics have even reached the guards at the, or the uh, travel tour guides at the Colosseum in Rome. When Tammy and I were there, they tried to convince me that the Christians had not really been fed to the lions, that they hadn't really died. And I thought, oh my God, I'm standing in the place where thousands of people died for Jesus Christ, and the guides touring us around deny it ever happened. Much like some people who look at Auschwitz and try to say that never happened. Gnostics are really good at racing history because they can't deal with it. So Peter's in prison. It's 64 A.D. We know that he's not here in 70 A.D., or at least the letter that we're going to read was not written after 70 A.D. And the reason was it was in 70 A.D. that Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. 
And that clearly would have been mentioned in the letter if Peter had known it at the time. So the letter we're going to study, 2 Peter, is probably written between 64 and 68 A.D. Okay? So Peter's in prison, starting to think. Jesus said I was going to die. I mean, the place where killing Christians is fun. I mean, they weren't just killing them. They were making spectacles of them. The streets were lit at night, by the way, of Christians who were torched on fire. That's how they lit the streets. Peter's in prison. He's a leader of the church. There's no way they're going to let him out. Unless God decides to bring him out again miraculously. But Jesus told him something, didn't he? You're going to be You're going to be suffered. You're going to be suffering. A fate is coming to you, Peter, about your death. So Peter knows that's happening. He knows it soon. He knows it could be any moment. So he writes. I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to me. In other words, I know I'm not getting out of this prison. So I'm writing to you. These are my last words. This is the most important message I'll ever write. I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. I'm about to tell you the most important thing I know. Based on all my experiences, all those places I've been, the moments I've been with Jesus, the moments He's been with me, the moments I've been in the early church, I'm getting ready to write down the last thing you got to know. According to strong evidence from the early church, Peter went to Rome, died as a martyr under Nero, was crucified by Nero upside down. Why? Because Peter refused to die like a savior. I don't deserve that. He was later called a founder with Paul of the church in Rome, but it's unlikely he ever had that title during his lifetime. Now the other thing is when we look at a book that somebody writes, we need to look at the tone of the book as well, right? I just showed you John a little while ago how loving it is, right? John's the gospel doctor of love in a lot of ways. Second Peter, not so much. Based on everything Peter's been through, what do you expect his book to be? Stern, direct. I haven't got time to waste. This letter is not flowing with poetry. It is brash, direct, unapologetic, no holes barred. It's full of, it's full of Peter. It's his book. In essence, it's a fighting letter. It's not some friendly tone. It's a fighting letter. And the letter at times is surprisingly belligerent. Peter holds nothing back in his use of the controversial argument, insult, and hyperbole in his battle with those who disagree with him. Make no mistake, there is a war going on in the church then and today about what constitutes true knowledge of God. Peter is angry. He's bowed up. He's looking for somebody to go after. He knows Jesus. He's been through it all. He has experienced it all, and soon he's going to be leaving it all. This is, I'm headed to the cross moment for Peter. I have nothing to lose. Yet instead of writing this letters to the enemies, he writes his letters to those who might be deceived by them. You see, Peter knows the only way a false teacher gets any traction is if somebody believes them. Peter writes those who are spoken of as having a faith of equal standing with the apostles. 
And it's addressed to the beloved. When he sat down to write his letter, he said, no, no. I'm going to write to the people that love Jesus. I'm going to write to those who have the same standing in Christ that I have. I'm going to write to them. Second Peter is written to the church throughout the ages in an effort to confront the inevitable confusion that persists on some very basic gospel questions. It's written with the hope of guarding God's people and unmasking all those who stand condemned for compromising who Jesus really is. Peter's approach to this lesson is a lesson to all of us. We don't need to waste time arguing with Gnostics. We talked about it last week. They are sent into the church by Satan to destroy the church. They look like us. They carry the Bible. They know Scripture. They know how to pray. They tithe. They give to the church. They serve in church. And some of them try to take teaching positions in the church. Most of the time they say things that are true, but once in a while, and then more often and more often, they begin to destroy the church through false teaching. Every elder and pastor spends more time guarding the flock from people who come into the church to destroy the truth of what Jesus has given to us. Often it's through the internet. We talked about it last week. If you missed that, go back online. It's there. You can watch it. Where church is under attack. They're sent to us like wolves. We talked last week. They're here to destroy us. They're not misled believers. The people, the Gnostics that Peter is addressing, they are not misled believers of Jesus. They are assassins sent into the church to destroy the believers of Jesus. We need to take away their audience. They need to walk into remnant and go, this is not a place I can be. The spirit is too strong. The truth is too real. No one's listening to me. Why are they not listening to me? Every other church, many other churches in America, I can go in and spout my stupidity and they all fall like stupid sheep because they don't know the scriptures. My job as a pastor to make sure it doesn't happen here. That you know the scriptures. You know them. Not that I know them. You know them. You know truth. The more you know truth, the easier it is to see lies. Because if I ever get up here and teach something wrong, you better call me on it. Peter says, look, I don't have to worry about the Gnostics. They'll self-destruct. I'll just take away their lifeblood. The lifeblood is they can't go after the sheep. Because my sheep are too smart. Peter isn't going to waste time in a debate with people sent by Satan to destroy his church. He's going to guard the flock. He's going to call out the deceivers. He's going to get rid of them. Each book of the Bible was uniquely inspired by God. Every word the Holy Spirit told that writer to write those words. Many times they were writing words that made no sense to them at the time, but to us now we look at it and go, wow. We've learned how the Holy Spirit guided every word, how the Holy Spirit oversaw and organized the canonization of the word and bringing the right scriptures into text. We've seen how the Holy Spirit protected the text and guarded them because they're of holy origin. Each book lovingly written, protected and joined together in a perfect tapestry of themes. Themes of God from Genesis to Revelation. The threads that run through the Bible are incredible. When you really study the Bible, the one thing you come away with is there's no way this book was written by anybody but God. 
And the second realization you realize is there's no way this book was put together by anybody but God because it's like themes run through the book from beginning to end. They never change. They never waver. Over 40 authors, 1,500 years, people that never knew each other, never lived in the same time, and yet this book is perfect from beginning to end. Only God does that. But there's another act of the Spirit that rarely gets spoken about. In fact, it's overlooked in Bible study. The Holy Spirit not only chose the words, spoke through the author, put the book together, but think about this. The Holy Spirit only picked one person to write the book. You see, every moment in Peter's life with the Holy Spirit working through him, giving him experiences, growing his boldness, growing his faith, teaching him about the restorative power of forgiveness, teaching him about the power of the words of God, so that he, the only person on the planet, could write this book. Every book in the Bible That person was uniquely wired, gifted, inspired to write the book. And when you think about it, for this book, at some point God knew it had to be written. There would be a day when one of the apostles, one of the last standing apostles would need to write the Gospels, would need to write the message. And at some point the Holy Spirit... Even though Peter was facing his own death, even Peter was about to be crucified, even though everybody would say, you got plenty to focus on, Peter remembered that Jesus facing his death was focused on him. So Peter facing his death is going to focus on the ones he loves. I'm going to pray that you don't fall. I'm going to pray that your faith is strong, and I'm going to write. See, the Holy Spirit in me is telling me I need to write something down. So I'm going to write this book to you, this letter. He could have prompted any of the apostles to write this book, those that were remaining. And we're going to see that later on, John's going to have the same moment 30 years later. I need to write what we call 1 John. We're going to study that. But for this book, at this moment in history, at this moment in the church, under this kind of attack, there's only one person that had the boldness and the experience to write the truth who would be believed by all the believers, and that was Peter. And when you think about it, he's the perfect choice. He's bold, he's brash, he has no problem speaking his mind. He knows truth about Jesus better than almost anybody. How dare they speak lies to him? Peter had denied Jesus three times, but he'd be damned before he'd stand by and let it happen again, not on his watch. This is Peter. Peter was not well educated, he was a simple fisherman. But God chose him, taught him, invested him, believed in him, and saw his potential. Knowing Jesus is not about what you know, it's about who you know. Now people are coming to the church saying you have to have special knowledge to be saved. Peter knew better than anybody you didn't need knowledge to be saved because he didn't have it. If being a true follower of Jesus was based on knowledge, Peter would never have known him and never been saved. He'd be damned before he let somebody come into his church and teach such lies. They're not true. Peter knew that Jesus was coming back because he kept his promises. How does he know that? Because Jesus came back for him. He denied Christ and Jesus died and Peter was crushed. And then three days, just as Jesus had promised, he came back and he came back to Peter first. He kept his promise. He knew Jesus had said he would return and he'd be damned before he let anybody come into the church and say he wasn't coming back. 
This is Peter. His whole life is in this. Peter stood on a mountain one day and he saw Jesus, the Son of God, in his full glory in a gown that was so bright they hit their faces. And then he heard the very voice of God, the voice of God, the same voice that Moses had heard. The voice of God speaks. And what does the voice of God say? Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. That's true. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You see, I think this is the Feast of Tabernacles. I think this is what's been taught in the Scriptures. I'm here. I'm your man. I'll build the tent. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed him. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when they heard it, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. Notice what God says. This is my son. Listen to him. Peter heard God. God. The voice. He heard the very voice of God claim Jesus as his son and instruct us to listen to him. Do you really think anybody else is more prepared to handle a false teacher who comes in the church and says, well, Jesus wasn't God's son and his teachings not worth listening to because I have special knowledge. God said, this is my son and Peter heard it. He'd be damned before he let somebody come in the church and teach such foolishness. Peter heard many call Jesus' names that did not reflect who he really was. They said he wasn't human. They said he was only a spirit. Yet God refused to let Peter be called by any name other than the one that spoke to the truth of who he was. He was not Simon, he was Peter the Rock. Be damned before he let anybody defame the name of Jesus. The worst day of Peter's life was the day he denied Jesus. The day Jesus said he was praying for him because Satan wanted to sift him. And Jesus said he was praying for Peter and he would not be weak. And Peter in the moment needed him the most was weak. In his biggest moment, Peter had failed Jesus. Peter tried to stop Jesus from going to Jerusalem and he said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus said, if I don't do this, you have no part in me. I have to wash your feet. Peter saw the anguish of Jesus in the garden. But he couldn't stay awake to pray. He tried to defend Jesus with the sword, but Jesus said no. Then Peter denied Jesus three times. It was a horrible day. And then Jesus was crucified for six hours. Everybody saw it. Everybody knew it. It was horrible. They took down his body, a very real human body, not some spirit. They buried it in a very real human tomb. Do you really think after that experience, every minute of that horrible day that Peter went through, that Peter would allow him to let anybody come into the church and tell him it never happened? Peter be damned before he let some fool come in and say Jesus didn't do what he said he would do. That he wasn't human, that he didn't die on the cross, that he didn't resurrect, that he didn't pay for our sins. There would be no such nonsense in the church of Jesus. Peter had been told by Jesus that he would die a painful death. So Peter knew he'd not see the return of Jesus in his lifetime. Think about that for a minute. Peter knew. 
If Jesus comes back, I don't die. He's not coming back in my lifetime. He told me how I would die. And he said I was going to die in a similar manner to the way Jesus did. I was going to suffer. But just because Jesus hadn't come back didn't mean he wasn't going to. Peter knew that. He'd be damned before he let somebody say Jesus wasn't coming back. Every day that Peter lived, he must have thought about how he didn't deserve what God had given him. How he denied Jesus. How he needed a Savior. How he had repented and confessed his sin. How God had not only blessed him, but restored him, forgave him. Put him in leadership. Blessed him for the rest of his life that he would always get to proclaim what he knew. Do you really think Peter's going to let somebody come into the church that Jesus entrusted to him? You, Peter, the rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. Do you think Peter would let anyone say that a relationship with Jesus is based on knowledge and not repentance and forgiveness? This is Peter. He knows. The Holy Spirit makes sure that Jesus is given all the glory due to him. He shaped Peter through every circumstance of his life to be an imperfect person to write a perfect message. No one could deliver such an important message at such a critical time. God leaves nothing to chance. This was Peter's moment. This is Peter's letter. This is Peter's truth. He is the rock. He's the unmoving mountain of truth that cannot be shaken. And he's about to write to us the most important things that he'll ever put on paper. After Jesus ascended back to heaven, he chose one man. One man that he knew under all circumstances would fight for truth no matter what. Every moment in Peter's life shaped and prepared him for this moment in 67 AD. The truth, everything Jesus had stood for was under attack. Peter stepped up and fought against those sent by Satan to destroy all that Jesus had done. How dare they speak and teach such lies about his best friend. God the Holy Spirit was doing something else you may not be aware of. Not only did he inspire the text, protect the text, organize the text, choose the perfect person for each book, but he's been doing something else. He's been preparing you and me to receive the text. To take Peter's words and stand in the gap. To stand in the place today for Peter, for those that preceded. Our church is under the same attack that every church is under. When we dive into the words of 2 Peter, I don't want us to just know them. I want us to live them. That's what Peter calls us to. That's what the Holy Spirit calls followers of Jesus to do. It's not about special knowledge. It's about living out the relationship in your life with boldness the way Peter did. Now here's something else I want you to think about and then I'll close. Gnosticism never got traction in the church up until about 100 A.D., Prior to that, it was a process, it was building, it was growing. But true Gnosticism, this true false religion, didn't infiltrate the church full force until between 100 and 300 A.D. That's when all the false books are written. That's when all the rejected scripture books are written, you know, the apocryphal books. And here's the reason why I think that's true. I don't think Satan could deceive anybody, truly deceive anybody. 
if Peter and John are still standing there. They carried so much weight and power and authority. I mean, just look at what Peter's been through. Nobody's going to tell him. I mean, he's just, I was there. What are you talking about? But once the apostles left, the defense of truth was left to people like you and me. Many people who perhaps were just a little too busy to read the scriptures, a little too busy to know them for ourselves. Maybe we'll trust the leaders to know them and we'll just go along and whatever's taught, we'll believe it, but we won't know the scriptures for ourselves. And it was in the first 200 years after John had died that the church started really to start embracing all these things. You and I have been handed the very words that Peter wrote from prison. We forget that. Peter, Peter wrote the words that you're holding. That book that's dusty on the shelf, the one you don't have time to open, the one you don't have time to read. The very words Peter would have died to get you to read. You know, it's interesting, there's a book, and I'm going to go on this for a sec. There's a book called um, Divine Mentor by Wayne Cordero, pastor of a church in Hawaii. He tells a story about how he went to Hawaii as a new pastor. And he couldn't connect with anybody. He couldn't connect with the literature. He couldn't connect with the people. He didn't have the language. He's supposed to pastor this church and nobody's following because he totally doesn't understand them. They're Hawaiian. They go back thousands of years. He's going through the field one day, through the woods, and he comes across this old beat up church building. And he realizes that's one of the churches that originally led to the church he's been called to teach in and to lead now. And he reads on the sign the name of a pastor. So he decides he's going to go try to learn about this pastor. And he learns out that this pastor, who lived three or four hundred years before he was there, had taken great time to write down instructions on how to reach these people. How their culture was unique, what you needed to know. He then discovered there was only one copy of this book left. And in order to look at this book, he had to go take a class on how to handle ancient manuscripts. So he learned how to put on the white gloves. He learned how to go into the vacuum-sealed, perfect room. He learned how to open the book. And he said every Wednesday, I think it was a Wednesday, he would go down and he would sit with this mentor who died hundreds of years before and literally read his instructions on how to reach the people that he was now called by God to reach. And he said he dawned on him that that's what Scripture is. That apostles, David, James... Peter, men of the Old Testament, Elijah, Jeremiah, David. They wrote down on paper ancient manuscripts for those that would follow. And we have divine mentors. When we want to know what we need to do to defend the truth, we go talk to Peter. And the Spirit talks to us through his words. When we want to grow in our love for Christ, we sit down and we begin to be mentored by John, who was the disciple Jesus loved. When we are struggling with an argument of logic, we might want to sit down and listen to Paul or Luke tell us as our divine mentor what we need to know. When we need to know what it's like to need forgiveness, we might want to read Peter or maybe David. You see, we have a book in our hands that unfortunately is not in some vacuum-sealed room where it carries the aura of an historical ancient document. It's on our shelves. It's right there. There's one, two, three, four right there. A couple over here. There's one here. 37 on my computer. 
It's not the number of Bibles you have. It's the number of times that Bible has been in you. You and I hold cherished words in our hands today. Words that Peter himself wanted to share with us. Words that are true today because they are defended without apology in previous generations. The only reason we have truth is other people stood up for truth. Otherwise we'd be reading some false doctrine of Gnostic crap in our churches. And many churches are. The words that we nonchalantly call Second Peter without much additional thought carry enormous power from one who knows what it's like to be with Jesus. I can't wait till next week to unpack what God wants us to desperately know from Second Peter. But until then, I want us to focus on his boldness. I want us to focus on how he would not let somebody tell him something he knew was not true. How he didn't waste time fighting with Gnostics. He wasted no time with them. He spent all of his time teaching believers truth. Because nobody gains traction in a church unless somebody's foolish enough to listen to it. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you love us. You knew we would need words of truth in our day, just like they needed words of truth in their day. I thank you, God, for this book that we nonchalantly call the Bible. I thank you for every person that sat down to write it, every word inspired by the Holy Spirit, every person who died to get that book to us, people who stood when some wanted to burn the book, people who stood when others just wanted to try to make it some fictional, mythical book. Yet God, generation after generation after generation, there's always been a remnant that stood for the truth no matter what. And God, in America today, there are many churches who are standing in the gap, holding on to truth, rejecting the lies of the world, Lord, please let this little church in Sarasota stand with them and stand strong. Your word tells us that you look to and fro for people whose hearts are truly yours. May we be those people. We love you. We thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for Peter. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're two weeks in, and I haven't said a word out of Scripture from Peter yet, really. <laughs>